There were street battles in Baltimore between their partisans and others, people shooting at each other at the polling place. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Dr. Matthew Green, a professor of political science, about cancel culture, conspiracies, and how to stay hopeful and connected to one another in an age of identity politics. There are things in American politics now that are not pretty, but uh, it has these things have happened before and they've been worse in our history. Dr. Green is an expert on the American Congress, and I ask him if it's possible to ever imagine our leaders practicing the discipline of relationship building and compromise in the political process. That compromise is central to how our country was created. It's how we've lasted as long as we have. Um, and you can't really succeed in politics, particularly in Congress, if you don't compromise. Are we such a divided country, really? You've heard me speak before about how our mindset, what we choose to focus on, determines the results we get. And I wonder if we need our sense of vision restored, our sense of imagination and humility nurtured. Instead of gravitating towards leaders who claim to have it all figured out, I wonder, would it hurt us to set the bar higher, to look for more spiritual leadership qualities in political leaders? It's not about absolutism. It takes, uh, as I think Weber said, it's the slow boring of hard boards. It takes a long time and a lot of work and it's not pretty. We touch on the history of identity politics and political paranoia in its latest form, cancel culture. The first example that, that, that comes to mind is the Red Scare era uh, of the 1950s with uh, Senator Joe McCarthy. Once your name got out in the newspapers or in a hearing, um, you couldn't get a job. Uh, you would get fired. I wonder, is there something about our history, something about our past in these United States that sets us up to have periods of intense culture wars played out in public life? I often think of the American dimension of this as an element of our puritanism, political puritanism, if you will. We talk about how listening to each other in the art of compromise is the foundation of politics, but how that seemed to change in the last century as elected officials realized they could no longer hide from media coverage as they bent and capitulated to forge working deals with opponents. One of the first things that you learn when you study Congress, if you didn't know it already, is Congress is not a very popular branch of government. And a lot of that cynicism about Congress, some scholars have argued, comes from people seeing how Congress works. Um, before the 70s, a lot of what they did was behind closed doors. How can we stay focused on things that build our connection to our common goal of solving problems? There are too many people who believe what they're reading on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. They're not checking their sources. Um, and that's not healthy. We need to have an informed public of people who really know what facts are, what is true and what's disputable. And what does a historian of American politics like Dr. Green say about the strength of our union? The state of the union is pretty strong. Um, I think it could be made stronger. <laughs> Welcome to the soul of life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is Pigs Can Fly. I need to know everything. Who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for ghosts to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life.
Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Uh, My guest today is Professor Matthew Green. He's a professor of politics and an associate fellow at the Institute for Policy Research and Catholic Studies. He has taught at Catholic universities since 2005. Professor Green teaches a variety of courses in American politics, focusing in particular on political institutions, state and local politics, federalism, and methodology. Among other classes, he teaches a course entitled Politics in the Age of Trump, about how American politics led to and has been shaped by the election of our outgoing president. Professor Green has written a number of books and articles about American politics. His most recent book, Legislative Hardball, examines the origins and influences of the House Freedom Caucus. He's also a staff writer for Mischiefs of Faction, a blog about political parties. It's my great honor to have you, Dr. Green. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Certainly. Um, love to talk about a bunch of things today. We're going to talk about if pigs can fly, conspiracies, uh, cancel culture and politics, American politics, which is your specialty in your area of research and teaching. Um, wanna want to tell you about a, 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 an experience I had in kindergarten to start things off here. Uh, it was an ordinary day for me. And, you know, what could go wrong in kindergarten, right? Everything is great in kindergarten. And I think I must have went over to the teacher and pointed out that somebody wasn't following the rules. You know, that's a totally a kindergarten move thing. Something that you do when you're in kindergarten. Like, hey, he's not following the rules. And to my surprise, the teacher reached into her mysterious desk drawer and in the very back pulled out this severed tail of a mammal, which I'm sure was fake, but had a clothespin on the end of it and she stuck it on my the back of my shirt. To my horror, the lesson was really clear from that point forward. No tattling. This was a tattletale. And so anybody who was going to tattle on others was going to get the shame of wearing this horrible thing. So that was my first experience with this idea of being canceled as a person in psychology um, and even in other fields like sociology. We we know about the idea of uh, being ostracized, being shamed out of the community. It's not something new to the human race. Um, But I'm here today to talk with you about politics and how that's gotten into our politics, the idea of uh, canceling other politicians. What's your experience with with how this is being uh, cancel culture sort of in politics is happening um, today? So um, as you say, the the use of shaming uh, or other kinds of techniques of embarrassment um, or otherwise uh, imposing some kind of social sanction for perceived misbehavior is part of uh, human nature and we see it just about everywhere. Um, but, uh, and that includes American, you know, the United States and includes American politics as well. Um, I think that it is always been a, um, a, a feature of American politics because, you know, politics is, a, is, uh, is a human endeavor. Um, and sometimes it can be, it can sort of flare up, uh, in certain circumstances and it can also emerge in, in certain ways, um, that, you know, can be positive or negative. I think, um, if we're thinking about the contemporary era that we're in, what we see is, a, I think, a um, kind of joining of several different forces that together create a particular facet of 
the use of shaming or, as some say, this uh, uh, you know cancel culture in American politics, um, starting with the use of social media. Uh, and social media is a very powerful tool. In politics, it can be used in ways to uh, to shame individuals for political behavior that's deemed inappropriate or incorrect. Um, and, and that can have real consequences. It's not just getting a nasty tweet about you if you're an elected official. It can be um, people advertising your family's, uh, their names, their identities, where your family lives, um, people coming to your house and protesting. Um, and while dissent is, you know, part of politics, it's part of a democracy, um, it, to the extent that it can lead to um, social sanctions that um, that can hurt individuals who may not even be responsible for activity that is deemed shameful or frankly, um, the activity is shameful to some but not to others. So it's not obvious that it's that is wrong. Um, you know, the use of social media can exacerbate the use of shaming in, in the political sphere. So there's other things as well, but you know, right off the bat, I'd say the use of social media is something that has made um, uh, you know, shaming people or, or even, you know, exercising aspects of cancel culture, um, much, much, uh, much more significant than in the past. It seems like also the social media, um, uh, ingredient adds potential layer of anonymity where people can kind of, uh, jump into some of these forums, uh, in some places and, and, and basically incite others to, you know, boycott, um, and, and you point out it can be used as a tool for good. I mean, it, right. I mean, I think anybody who may be involved in, if you've ever been, um, jilted by the airlines or something, you may, <laughs> I remember that was the, one of the first reasons I opened up a Twitter account personally was to sort of complain to, you know, like the airline company because of whatever, whatever, because I knew customer service would be watching their Twitter account. Um, so it sort of evolved. It seems like the social media has evolved. What about before? Twitter and before social media? What was it like before? We've always had um, uh, periods in our history where there's been the use of uh, shaming uh, and embarrassment um, and and ostracizing individuals in politics to get some either some political outcome or just simply because people are upset. Um, And, uh, you know, the first example that 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 comes to mind, um, you know, arguably is the, um, the, the Red Scare era, uh, of the 1950s. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, Senator Joe McCarthy, um, which was ostensibly about finding, um, uh, communists in the U.S. government who were leaking information to the Soviets or were serving as spies. But it, it metastasized into a kind of, um, you know, shaming of people either who were, in, who were in politics or not in politics because of their, Point of view or their, uh, their former association sometimes with the Communist Party, in some cases almost no association with the Communist Party. Um, and it was something that I think, um, was so powerful because leaving aside the circumstances of the time period, the, the Cold War and so forth, um, you had not just one senator, but you had outside groups, uh, like veterans groups who got involved, who were looking, who were helping finding names, publicizing names and these people, there was no social media, but once your name got out in the newspapers or in a hearing, um, you couldn't get a job. Uh, you would get fired. Uh, and with that, and there was, so there was no due process whatsoever. Um, and in many ways, I'd say that would be an example of this kind, an extreme example of this use of uh, a public forum to shame individuals for um, not even necessarily committing an act of treason, but just their political viewpoints. This is sort of being blacklisted, um, politically 
and and maybe economically, like the boycott obviously has economic consequences for an individual or a person. They're never going to get a job again. I mean, that that ruined people's lives and careers and reputations, right? I mean, for people who who lived through that, right? That was not just, oh, it's going <laughs> to, people will forget about it, right? They, they were serious. It was all like a red letter type of thing, right? That's exactly right. Yes. And again, you know, there's been a significant research in recent decades about, um, you know, what McCarthy was doing, the data he had, and the, the most persuasive or the most sympathetic accounts that I have uh, encountered about McCarthy was that there were people in the in the U.S. government, there were some who were communists and a small number who were spies. Um, most of them, uh, most of the spying that had happened had been decades before. It had been during, or, you know, 10, 15 years before in World War II. Many of them were already gone. So it was really a very uh, belated effort to remove a problem that didn't exist anymore. And in the process, as you say, it caught up a lot of people who had uh, done nothing wrong politically or not even committed any crimes at all. Um, but their reputations uh, were ruined uh, in some cases for, for the rest of their lives. All right. What about other examples going back in, in American history? Uh, well, we did actually have a Red Scare uh, in after World War I, uh, which not many people know about, um, which was uh, similar. And a lot of individuals uh, were uh, accused of treason, were uh, in some cases rounded up um, uh, by law enforcement, um, ostensibly for spying against the United States, often with very little evidence uh, for that. So there's that that actually uh, is another example of something that happened earlier in our history. Um, you know, before that, I think um, a lot of times these um, kind of uh, cases of um, uh, ostracism or shaming was tied in with prejudice against um, not people's political views, but often what country they were from, um, what languages they spoke, etc., and, uh, and sometimes it was not so much about removing people from power or from office or having them get fired, but rather trying to force them to, through social sanctions, to act in certain ways. So one of the things, for example, in World War I that happened was um, a lot of German Americans were visited by individuals who had organized on behalf of raising money for, uh, you know, for the war effort. And they pretty much said, you need to be giving money because your last name is German. Uh, and if you don't, that means that you really are supporting the Germans in World War I. Um, so a lot of German Americans felt um, social uh, pressure to, uh, to contribute to the war effort. Um, and, and if not, you know, then they would be deemed presumably as traitors. So during wartime, you often see things of this nature and also t- periods where you have large influxes of immigrants, um, where you have these sort of concern, well, these people aren't really Americans, they can't be trusted um, because of where they're from or how they look or the language they speak. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily require a law to uh, for these individuals to feel ostracized or feel pressured to behave in a certain way. Right, right. Um, psychologically, neurologically, shame works in the brain, at least people have speculated about this, in a way to uh, motivate or, or correct behavior as for the group. Right. Uh, there's been people who've given examples about the positive usefulness of shame uh, during a pandemic, for example, um, where if, if people are acting a certain way that's dangerous for the whole group and there's a small number of people who are uh, not towing the line and, and acting in, in a way that threatens the whole group, then shame acts to push back against that threat. 
um, in a way that's not necessarily violent, but it can, you know, it can become violent. We see that through, played out through cultural histories and through wars that are started um, lynching, you know, sadly, right? So in our American history, like the 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 hunts that would, um, the, the or the witch hunts of of Salem and um, the Puritan sort of um, era where there was this hysteria and paranoia of somebody who was being accused of um, basically looking at another person the wrong way and and then they were you know accused of being uh, satanic or you know affiliated against god or that sort of thing so it takes a tone in religious persecution as well would you say yes and and I'm, it's interesting you mention that because even though uh, it might be part of the human condition to shame others into behaving in a certain way i often think of the american um dimension of this as an element of our puritanism uh, that, that there is a Puritan strain in American political culture. Um, and to the extent that that strain includes the belief that there, that you are part of a group and that individuals must conform in that group and failure to conform justifies the community in, um, exercising judicial or extrajudicial punishment, then yeah, I think it's part, it is something that's, that's particular to, to American political, political culture. And maybe it's a religious, uh, element to it also. Uh, just in general, but I tend to think of it at least to talk about it in my classes in, as sort of American Puritanism, uh, political Puritanism, if you will. Um, it's also, if I may, you mentioned the, the aspect of masks and um, thinking about how uh, our current society or particularly our, our political elites are so polarized. Um, in theory, the idea that if we all agree on something, then a few who don't conform and therefore put us all in some sort of physical danger, well, it makes sense and is arguably a positive good to use shame to prevent uh, nonconformity. But when issues become polarized and there's no longer common agreement, then it becomes, I think, more dangerous to the body politic. So taking mass, for example, this shouldn't be a political issue, in my opinion, right? We have scientists, they study the coronavirus, they know how it spreads. We should all be wearing masks and keeping six feet apart to uh, help each other uh, and keep ourselves health- healthy. But uh, many folks, for many folks, it's become politicized. So wearing a mask indicates that you belong to, say, the Democratic Party or you're a liberal. And if you don't wear a mask and you're a conservative, I mean, this is silly, but when this happens, then you can have the opposite problem, where if you are in a community of people who don't believe in masks because their leaders have told them it's bad and you wear one, they could shame you. They could say, why are you wearing a mask? Are you a coward? What's wrong with you? And encourage you to do something that's less safe in order to resolve those feelings of, that you get from shame, as you mentioned. So yeah. I think that the danger is that when you have this, this, added, this, this use of shame connected with political polarization, um, then you can, you can actually end up with results that are, that are less healthy and more dangerous to right. society. Right. Yeah. I would point out too that shame is a very primitive physiological phenomenon in the body. It's our, it's, it's often felt in the gut. Um, so it's what we call a primary emotion. It's something that's involuntary. We can't control it. And so we tend to avoid it and we tend to want to get rid of it as fast as possible. Just like if you feel nauseous after eating something, you, you want to feel good as fast as possible. You don't want to feel nauseous. So shame has that, it's a motivating effect. We want to do whatever we can to to stop what's causing it, including giving it to somebody else, <laughs> um, blaming it on someone else. Here, it's a hot potato. I feel awful. You know, achoo, I'm going to sneak out. Now you feel awful, hopefully. And and I'm going <laughs> to, there's a German word, I, I think it's schadenfreuden or schadenfreude. 
Ja, die, Schaden, die, Schadenfreude. Yes. <lacht> Schadenfreude. Die, the, the, uh, the joy of someone else's suffering, enjoying yes. someone else's suffering. I think, um, you know, we can see that operating in the brain neuro neurochemically that when we are in a down, uh, position, when neuro biologically down, we want to do something to feel up again. And, um, you know, there's a release of, of stress chemicals when we are aggressive towards others. If we're fighting, that makes us, you know, feel better. It's why, you know, playing football, the, the amphetamines that are released in a football player's nervous system during, during play, you know, during the game, in fact, is equivalent to, you know, the shooting up on drugs is there's, it gets a person energized and motive and they can feel good from that, but it can be mistaken because these are very primitive emotions and very primitive systems in the body that can be mistaken for maybe genuine or authentic joy. Um, mm. when, in other words, we're covering up one thing, creating another problem. Um, you know, I, I, I want to read a, a piece. We'll, we'll talk a little bit. I'm curious how you, how you do teach this with your students, because I think it's important for all of us to talk about these types of things and, and have a safe place to talk about uh, these things. I want to read a piece from the New York Times um, in the New York Times Style and Culture magazine called The Long and Tortured History of Cancel Culture by Ligaya Misham. She writes, so much has been written about cancel culture in the past year that weariness sets in just reading the words. What it is, what to call it, and whether it even exists are all in dispute. The term is symbolically applied to incidents both online and off that range from vigilante justice to hostile debate to stalking intimidation and harassment. She gives a number of examples of people who have uh, done something you know, arguably one could say is um, hurtful to another person. But then the consequence, as you point out, becomes not just to even the score or prevent more of more bad actors. The, the, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes almost like revenge and punishment. Um, and, uh, you know, even some people would talk about the idea of that the, the conversations of uh, removing Confederate monuments, like going on a sort of a, a list through American history and saying, you know, who had any, did you have a speck of affiliation? Did somebody in your family own slaves? Well, then you're, you should not have a building named after you or something like that. So taking what might be a kernel of a good, of a good idea and then applying it so broadly that it ends up harming people. Um, you mentioned this is not a new thing. I guess I, I wonder, uh, how do you teach this? How, how does it come up in, in, in the subjects that you're, you're teaching a class about the politics in the era of Donald Trump? How does it, how does it come up? Well, it's, um, you know, whenever you're teaching a controversial subject, regardless of whether it's about uh, the president or about uh, American political thought or the, you know, this, this, uh, things that are controversial in general, it's, it's always a challenge in a classroom. Um, and you always try as a, as a teacher to create a space in which people feel comfortable saying um, things that, that they think. Of course, sometimes that means students say things that are, uh, that are difficult for others to hear. Um, and um, that makes it just, you know, that, that, that's part of the challenge of teaching uh, controversial subjects. Um, and in my politics in the, in the age of Trump course, sometimes that's come up. Sometimes the, uh, the conversation becomes heated. Um, you know, one of the, there's a couple of things uh, that I do. One of them uh, in just thinking about American politics is to, is to turn to the research that we have and the theories that we have. Because even though it's hard for anyone to get rid of their bias, um, there's a lot of good political science research out there about, um, controversial subjects and, um, and looking at empirical data. And so rather than having 
a dialogue turn into a, well, I believe this or no, you're wrong that. Right. Um, we look to things that people have written. Well, here's, here's the history, right? Here's the, what the statistics tell us. Here's what the analysis tells us. Um, and then let's engage with that. Um, I actually also do something in, in my classroom that, um, that has worked pretty well, which is I, I talk about how American politics is, we can, I compare it to a game, like a football game. Okay. And you've got two teams, like two parties. You've got uh, the refs who are like the, the judicial branch. You've got, you know, uh, ESPN, which is like the media. And so when we study American politics, it's all different pieces of this football game. And then I asked the students, so who are we in this football game? When we're in class, who are we in this game? Uh, and some students say we're the fans. Uh, some students say that we're the ones who are writing the rules of the game. Um, but what I tell them is that who we are in this football game is we are the Goodyear blimp. We are above the game. Right? And we're looking at all the different pieces. And so if at some point our debate turns into the game itself, where we're fighting over which side is the better side or whatever, I, t- I just remind the students, go back to the Goodyear blimp. Okay, You can have your opinions, absolutely, and you want to debate them. That's fine. But in the classroom, we're trying to learn some higher truths about American politics. So we go back up to that Goodyear blimp. That's really clever. That reminds me of... Uh... Uh, of, of some of the training that I've done where we, we are engaged in a, a, you know, a role play of a situation and somebody has to play a, a hostile client or an angry client or somebody who's upset and somebody who's really hurting and acting in a way. And then you, of course, after that role play, you say, okay, I am not that person. You know, you, you, you find a way. And I think <laughs> actors do this too, have a way or they have to, to keep their sanity. You know, if they play a role that is really, sinister or something, you know, that some way for them to separate from it and, and stay in touch with their most human parts that, Hey, we're all in this together. We're, we're a team here. Let's try to remember that. Um, that sounds like a great uh, device that you're using. Um, your, your field, Matt is, uh, in political science and specifically the U S house of representatives. Is there any, any link between mistrust of government roving unpremeditated moral panic that Michan in the New York Times writes about. Well, I don't, I don't just not want to vote for that politician. I think that politician shouldn't ever be in office anywhere or should never hold a job. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, because I studied Congress, one of the f- first things that you learn when you study Congress, if you didn't know it already, is Congress is not a very popular branch of government. It's arguably the least popular of the three branches of our national government. Um, so there has been skepticism and cynicism towards Congress um, since really the mid to late 1970s. Um, and it's not that members of Congress like it. They'd like it to be better, but many of them are resigned to that, to that fact. Um, I think one of the consequences of, uh, of that cynicism that people have is you have periodic either um, movements within Congress to change its rules, to make it more, quote unquote, honest, uh, or more, um, you know, something that's, that's respected by voters, um, which doesn't, which has some mixed results, but at least you have that periodic impulse to make the institution a better and more honest place. Um, the other thing that, that, that comes to mind is you have these periodic groups of members that get elected, usually in these big swing elections or these big wave elections that come in, they're freshmen. They say, you know what? Time to clean house. You know, I got elected to change things and shake things up. And that's what I'm going to do when I'm in Congress. Now, those members are often the ones who are pushing for good reforms. And so that's a plus. And they bring a fresh perspective to Congress. And that's always welcome. 
But many of them also feel a sense of kind of a populist entitlement that they speak for the people and therefore their way is the right way to do things. Um, and a lot of that cynicism about Congress, some scholars have argued, comes from people seeing how Congress works. Um, before the 70s, a lot of what they did was behind closed doors. And when you're actually watching people negotiate... So C-SPAN is the... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's C-SPAN. It's also more votes are recorded, um, more hearings are are, um, are are broadcast, and there's more insider accounts of what's happening. And the sad fact about politics, but it's you know, which is fundamental, is that it's it's about compromise. It's not about absolutism. Um, it's uh, you know, it it takes uh, as I think Weber said, it's the slow boring of hard boards. It takes a long time and a lot of work, and it's not pretty. Uh, or the old saying, right? That it's like, you know, being in a sausage factory, right? It's not pretty. So when people see that, they say, this is bad and this is, we should change it. And a lot of times these young members who come in say, that means no compromise at all. Absolutism. I want X and I have to get X or everything is a disaster. Uh, and there's total failure. And that's just not how a legislature works. It's impossible. Not even the president, who's just one person, always gets his way. Um, and that, I think, leads to uh, things that make Congress look even worse in the eyes of the public. You have these government shutdowns. You have these, you know, playing with the debt limit every once in a while. You've got things that people want that aren't getting passed uh, because no one will compromise. And uh, and so I think that that, that is a, a harmful side to that cynicism uh, that people have towards Congress. Now, you talked a little bit about the use of shaming. Um and, um, you know, it's hard to say how much that affects Congress. I mean, lawmakers are used to getting attacked. That's kind of their, the gist of it. Uh, I th- they got to have thick skin. Yes, you have to have thick skin. Um, there was one humorist whose name eludes me at the moment who, uh, wrote that Congress is good for nothing except for being a vehicle for us to yell at. They, they are the ones, they are like the scapegoats. We yell at them. They take the, they take the abuse. Um, it was PJ O'Rourke. It was PJ O'Rourke and, uh, uh, Parliament of Dunces or whatever it was called. No, um, Parliament of Horrors, I think it was called. Um, and so you kind of have to take that. Uh, but, um, you know, I think one problem is that it, it discourages good people from running for office who might have thinner skins, but would be really good at the job. Uh, and instead encourages people who can appeal to a base. These people always love me no matter what. I never want to compromise with them. As long as they love me, it's great. I don't care what the other side said. They can shame me all they want. As long as I have my party base. Right. Um, and that, and that feeds into the kind of polarization that often makes it even harder for Congress uh, and members of Congress to get together to reach agreements. Right. It's one of the things I find myself, um, as a clinician treating people with things like anxiety and depression. Which are, you know, things that we, you know, we are, that it happens. It happens to a lot of us. And, and when we start to dig into, well, what is your lifestyle? What are some of the choices you're making when you look at like, um, people who are engaged in social media and seeing a lot of the studies and research bears this out when you, when you're spending a lot of time on a feed and you're not seeing the context for someone else's success, you know, people tend to post things either that are really good or really bad. And so you're not seeing the context for all the in-betweens, all the, the hard, like you said, the hard work, the boring aspects of life. My, my guest, uh, recently was, uh, Deirdre Wallenick Honnold, who the, who's the mother of a phenomenal superstar rock climber, Alex Honnold. 
and everyone re- does you know these reports on on his talent without really recognizing what's behind the scenes is this you know decades a couple decades of hard work and really boring kind of uh, obsession with with doing one thing over and over and over again um you can't just walk out onto a, a ledge and climb it um and so it seems like we're kind of fighting the same thing you're listening to the soul of life podcast with me keith miller Every week, I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. I want to I want to read to you uh, a quote from one of my previous guests, the founder of the public policy journal National Review and former special assistant to George W. Bush, Yuval Levin. He said to me on the Soul of Life, "The problems we have are not the fault of some outside force that's acting on us that needs to be pushed away. It's us." He said, "It's all us." And how do we approach it that way? He said, "I think that's where we can begin to solve problems." Um, you mentioned compromise. And there is, uh, there is, I, I suppose it may not be well known to some people, but it's in, in Europe or specifically in the Netherlands, a, w- a well-known sort of uh, phenomenon over the last few decades called the Polder model, P-O-L-D-E-R, which is a consensus decision-making based um, type of politics based on the Dutch version of this, of their reforms economically and social policy in the 80s and 90s. It's sort of an enshrinement of this laborious inclusion of everyone's view everyone has we we are going we're not going to leave the room until we have included all parties in the solution it's not without controversy in that country or certainly beyond um but do you think the u.s congress could benefit from some sort of institutionalized um way of 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 making congress compromise that if people knew that was that was what our job is here to do uh, is to compromise. Would it would it help? Could that pig fly in the U.S.? Well, I do think that uh, there aren't enough lawmakers who um, who believe that compromise is a virtue, uh, and it's one of the things I teach in my classes every year. That compromise is central to how our country was created. It's how we've lasted as long as we have, um, and you can't really succeed in politics, particularly in Congress, if you don't compromise. The model that you describe, which I think also Sweden had for many years, a kind of cooperation between like unions and, and industry. Um, it, you know, there's a lot going for it. Um, it. You know, a couple of things that come to mind is, first of all, it in many ways reflects the political culture of those countries. Um, and I don't think we have the same political culture. We certainly don't, certainly not one that speaks to that. We have a more uh, adversarial political culture. And we have a legalistic po- culture. We have one that believes in, you know, X versus Y. You, you have plaintiffs and defendants. You have team A, team B, and that there's a winner and a loser. Uh, and then presumably, right, the winner deserved to win because they made a better case. They have more evidence, what have you. Um, we certainly, I think at the local level, there's more of a communitarian spirit or has been in our culture. But at the national level, you just don't see it to the same degree you see in Scandinavia. So it's not something I would expect, first of all, Congress to adopt or our, our political system to adopt. Plus, our constitution isn't structured that way. It's again, it's structured as competing forces or competing poles of power. Checks and Executive balances. branch, legislate. Exactly. It's the same idea. Checks and balances. 
Um, so they're checking each other, and then presumably there's some kind of balance that comes from that, but it's adversarial. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but it's set up so that advers- adversarial relationships come naturally, I would argue, um, to some degree. But of course, the system is also set up so that if there isn't some compromise and cooperation, it will fail because power is shared among these different institutions. Um, you know, I don't want to overstate. I, it's easy to say, well, in the good old days, right? Well, in the good old days, we all compromised. Things were better. That is not true. Um, but we have had periods in our history where compromise was easier to achieve and there was less adversarial, fewer, less adversarial politics. Um, you know, the early 20th century, the era of good feelings, uh, or 19th century, excuse me, um, the post post civil war, excuse me, the post world war II era, 1950s and 60s. You had that. Um, and a lot got done during those periods. And so there, and there is something to be said for that. What's the flip side? Well, the flip side is if every, there's never everybody who wins. It's just not possible. There's always somebody or some group that loses and, um, new issues can crop up in which it's hard to get agreement. So one, uh, um, example that comes to mind, uh, I'm not going to get the quote right, but to sort of capture the gist of what he was saying. Uh, Newt Gingrich, who was Speaker of the House from 1995 to 1998. And before that, he was a big advocate of the Republicans trying to win control of the House of Representatives, which they had not uh, controlled since 1952. So they were 40 years in the minority. Um, and he's, he, you know, he at one point said something to the effect of, you know, compromise is great, but what the compromise results in is the Democrats have all the power. So the Republicans and their conservative views don't get heard in the House of Representatives and we don't have any influence. So, Compromise prevents conflict, but somebody loses out. And his point was, at some point, you have to say, no, we're going to have to fight with each other because the outcome goes against what us and a lot of other Americans believe to be true. So um, I don't want to say that you know conflict is always good. It can go to extremes. I believe that very strongly. But at the same time, the if the alternative is everybody gets along and everyone has their say, inevitably, somebody's going to lose. Um, and actually, I'll just mention one other example in history where compromise ended up with a big loser, with big losers, which was um, uh, after the Civil War, when um, Southern Democrats were trying to disfranchise African Americans uh, and deny them social equality. Um, Republicans fought against them. Republican Party fought against them for many years, and then finally, they basically they gave up. The Republicans said, "You know what? It's not worth fighting this anymore." And they reached a tacit agreement with the Democratic Party in the 1880s and 1890s. It's okay for you to take away the right of blacks to vote. Um, it's okay for you to pass separate but equal legislation. Um, we're fine with that. So there was a grand unity between the two parties on racial issues at the expense of African Americans who lost the right to vote, who were subject to lynching, uh, political violence, as you mentioned. So compromise does not always yield a good result. It can often yield a, a very, very bad outcome. Right, right. I, I, and, and certainly people who, who are, um, who want to remain distinct in their identity. We didn't talk much today about identity politics and, uh, and how that has shaped, uh, American, the American Congress, American politicians over the recent years. But people who want to remain distinct, there's a recent article I read, um, I think it was just yesterday that is the sort of the pushback from um, Latino people, Hispanics that are not on board with the idea of being referred to as Latinx um, mm-hmm. and this sort of idea that, that, that that's a, a more inclusive, politically correct. And certainly you could 
you know, there's people you can name on both sides, I think, who kind of rail against political correctness. Bill Mayer would be one who, on the left, who uh, rails against uh, being political correct, p- politically correct. Um, you know, for just for fun, are are there conspiracies? Yeah, I, I think it gives me solace. I don't know about you, Matt, but it gives me some comfort to to think that you know we're probably not at, at in as much of a crisis. I mean, the sky isn't falling. I mean, I always like to think. Um, it, I love reading history books to learn about some of these debates and, or even just, uh, learning about the history of Hamilton through, through the musical, obviously in the last popularity of that, that, you know, we had a, I believe a sitting vice president, uh, shoot and kill <laughs> Aaron Burr, right. Uh, you know, killing Hamilton, um, when we, on our worst day in the last four years, um, hasn't it been worse before with conspiracies or with, some of these uh, rivalries that we see in politics. Well, yes, I do think it has been a worse. Um, and it also gives me some solace. So it's not as if we've never been as polarized as we are now, or have people been as nasty to each other politically in the political sphere as they are now. Um, I guess the question is, are we in the 1850s or are we in the 1870s? Right. <laughs> both, both periods, highly polarized, tremendous party conflict. Um, Things could get very nasty, um, and people have very strong views about their their parties. And the, and the newspaper, you know, people talk about biased media, and this is the conservative. That's what newspapers were. I mean, the New York Times was, I think it was the Democratic Party. It was that was it. You read it, you read it. I've read these old papers, and it just reads like this partisan, you know, pamphlet. Like it had news, but it was always tilted uh, to one party. Um, but if we're in the 1850s, we're in much worse shape than the 1870s. Right. 1850s is, uh, we are fundamentally, our differences are, are non-reconcilable, and the only solution is a dissolution of the country. 1870s, we ended up not, obviously, going down that route. Um, I tend to think that we are more in the latter. We're more in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, the, yes, there's occasionally talk about political violence. There's been some, you know, occasional people saying, oh, maybe, you know, the military should seize our ballot boxes because the election was fraudulent, and there's all this you know, conspiracy theories that are going about, as you mentioned, um, that tends still to be the fringe. I know there are people in office, in Congress who talk this way, but there aren't that many. They are the fringe. The social media, as I mentioned earlier, like social media serves to amplify it to some degree. But the vast majority of Americans do not share those views, certainly not to the extreme as the ones you hear uh, in the news and, and Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, there's occasionally talk. I know that, you know, the head of the Republican Party in Texas, uh, who was a for, for himself a former House member, was a really colorful fellow, you know, said, well, maybe Texas needs to leave the union. Okay, yeah, fine, whatever, right? Let's just talk. They're not actually going to do that. It's, it's, it's not it comes up happen. every now and then. Yes, right. California, parts of California say it. Parts of Texas say it. Parts of New York say it. Yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not there. We're not Spain, okay? We're not the United Kingdom. Right, we so- don't have a genuine, real threat of secession or rebellion in our country. And yes, there are conspiracy theories floating about. It is not new in American politics. Um, another example that comes to mind would be um, the Know Nothing Party of the 1850s. And it was a political party that was organized around, um, I wouldn't call it white supremacy, but anti-Catholicism, anti-immigrant views. Um, they were also had conspiracy theories that the Catholics were secretly you know, running the country. And there were street battles in Baltimore between their partisans and others, people shooting at each other at the polling place. 
Um, they got members elected to Congress. Nathaniel Banks, who was a Speaker of the House, was a member of the Know Nothing Party. So they reached quite a, a you know, serious, it was short-lived, but some significant prominence in the 1850s. We don't have that. The Republican Party is not at that level at all. The Democratic Party is not. They've got members who are that way, but they are not that way. So, um, yes, if it provides a solace, it's not, there are things in American politics now that are not pretty, but uh, it has, these things have happened before and they've been worse in our history. The State of the Union is strong. The State of the Union is pretty strong. Um, <laughs> I think it could be made stronger. <laughs> and I would start with, you know, again, I'm, I'm reflecting my students who talk a lot about social media, but I would start with the information that we're getting. Um, it's simply a, a wild west out there. And there are too many people who believe what they're reading on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. They're not checking their sources, um, and that's not healthy. We need to have an informed public and people who really know what facts are, what is true, and what's disputable. Um, because if we don't share common facts about what democracy is and what's happening around us, um, then then that makes the State of the Union uh, a lot weaker. Right, right. Um, finally, I guess I want to just end on 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 this positive note on on the things that we can do to to strengthen just in our own orbit, you know, our own unions that we have with people, our own connections. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the of the actor, but he he played Captain America, Chris Evans. Is it Chris Evans? Mm-hmm. Um, he started a, and I reference this in another show uh, with the with Yuval Levin episode. Um, you know, he started a uh, a website where he gives a platform to politicians who basically it's a no spin zone. It's a really it's a like a real no spin zone, like you know. Uh, he really d- gives them, uh, he incentivizes and curates, uh, only, po- only politicians making statements about an issue or about what they stand for. And he just doesn't allow any sort of rhetoric. He's just like, just talk about the facts. You can have a discussion and, and without trying to take something back from the other person. There's a, there's a concept that we use in marriage and family counseling called, uh, standing up for yourself without putting the other down. And it's such a rich concept because, you know, we didn't talk much about this because it, it takes a lot of work to stand up for yourself. It takes a lot of work to listen to somebody else. Um, and those two things can be done at the same time, but typically we, we conflate it. We, we think we have to, I have to stand up by pushing myself up off of you. Um, for example, or, I, or, you know, I'm going to, I'm only going to listen to you after you've listened to, to me. So I focus more on getting you to listen to me than on giving you the opportunity to be heard. And uh, I guess what I want to say to people and, and ask your reflection on this, what, what you what you might say to people as well, is that, you know, that that it really is rewarding when we do stand up on our own, when we when we decide to um, to do something good for others and not take something away and, and really genuinely not to not giving something so that we get something, but just genuinely kind of being open to others. What, what would you say to people? How can we stay hopeful in this age of uh, conspiracies and cancel culture? <laughs> Well, the good news is that we are still a free society and we have freedom of expression. We also have lots of places to get news and information. There's a lot of good, trustworthy sources on the left, right, middle, wherever, where you can learn about what's going on around you and get some thoughtful analysis. So that's good. It's not gone. It's just harder to find and gets less attention. Um, you know, the thing that Chris Evans is doing, which I heard about as well, I think is is fantastic. And the problem is it's not really politically rewarded, but there need to be more people doing that kind of thing. Um, in, the, in 1993 and 1994, 
Democrats and Republicans tried an experiment of Oxford-style debates, where instead of going to the floor and telling the camera why they were right and everyone else was wrong, you had two people from each, one person, uh, two people, one from each party, and they debated something, and they actually would debate it. And so you could watch it and say, oh, okay, so I see why you think this. And so I guess it's about how mm. important taxes are to you or how important, you know, access to healthcare is to you. Um, and you didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't so much about persuading that you're wrong so much as learning why you're, the other side thinks the way they do. And that's just so important. And it's something I think is important. And I try to convey in the classroom, bringing in guest speakers, talking about both sides of issues. So people really use their heads, right? And they think critically. Yeah. Um, those kinds of exercises, I think, are really valuable. Um, and so I think that's what people who are elites, either Hollywood actors or people in office should be doing. I think those of us who are just ordinary citizens should be getting more information from good sources and seek out people you disagree with and have a real conversation with them. Do not engage on social media. Do not do tweets saying how you're right and everyone else is wrong or this is stupid or dumb. Those aren't, that's not helpful. Um, have a, find somebody you disagree with and say, okay, let's talk about abortion. Let's talk about healthcare. Let's talk about taxes. Right. Why do you think this way? Now let, now you listen to why I think this way. Okay. Right. So right. we just, we can agree to disagree. And I think you just learn more about people, but then you also, I think, develop a mindset that makes it easier to compromise, uh, and to think about politics as really an art where we're trying to just make society a better place as opposed to right. a battlefield where there's only winners and losers. Yeah, there are really a lot of nooks and crannies out there like that. Social media is something that we teach our kids uh, about is that social media tools, uh, you know, they're tools and they're only as useful as the person using them, like, like a hammer or a saw, anything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, the so-called front lobby of a lot of these social media tools are, you know, like you said, it's the wild west. It's, it's almost like it's just, it's just drinking from a fire hose. But if you go into the, some of the back rooms or if you find certain rooms that are uh, curated, certainly in, in mental health and, and therapy, they're used for, um, sharing, um, with each other's sharing each other's burdens, listening to each other's stories. And you have, um, groups that you can be a part of that where they're moderated and you have somebody saying, look, we're, we all know everybody's great. Well, you don't have to come here to say how great you are. Um, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to listen and you're going to get bounced if you, if you don't, if you don't. So you're going to get can canceled. Um, there's a lot of places out there. Where can people find you? Um, you're writing, you're speaking, anything you want to say about something you're working on currently? Uh, well, the best place to find out about me, uh, <laughs> I do have a Twitter account, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> Uh, but it's, it's really about sharing political science, uh, you know, data and research and things like that, as well as my own research. Um, you can also, the easy place to find me is just go to the Catholic University, uh, webpage for the Department of Politics. Um, and there's some information in there and a link to my personal webpage, which has my uh, research. Uh, and then, um, also, uh, the writing and including linked to some of my stuff I write, write online, like at Mischiefs of Faction, like you mentioned. Um, that's really the best way to, if you're interested to learn more about the kind of research that I do. Great. So one, it's a pleasure to have you, Dr. Green. Your, your recent book is called Legislative Hardball. It's available from Cambridge University Press, 2019. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, 
Really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. The State of the Union is strong.